Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of Ingot Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Heidi Sanborn, Executive Director at the National Stewardship Action Council. So, defining what Heidi does was quite challenging because over the past 25 plus years, she has held some of the most influential and powerful positions across county and state jurisdictions. And the list of accolades are long, starting with her role as the chair for California's Waste Management Board, which sets goals around how to divert waste, all the way through now, where she directs the Sacramento Municipality Utility District, which is the sixth largest nonprofit publicly owned electric utility in the nation, has over 2,200 employees, and manages a $1.8 billion budget. And so in the episode, Heidi and I will discuss what fired her up early in her career and made her say the planet would be the common denominator across her career, the top legislative victories that defined the first mile in her career and showed to the world that she was a force to be reckoned with, leading the nation and the world in setting a goal of zero carbon emissions by 2030 in a district the size of Sacramento, and finally, the generational work she has accomplished as the executive director at the National Stewardship Action Council and the key priorities that are in the pipeline over the next few years. Y'all, this was a roller coaster episode filled with inspiration, emotion, and goes to show how every single one of us, if driven by passion about something, can accomplish things far beyond what we might think is possible. So without further ado, I'm thrilled for y'all to listen to our conversation with Heidi Sanborn, Executive Director at the National Stewardship Action Council. Heidi, welcome to the show. Thanks, so glad to be here. Heidi, we have a ton of ground to cover today. For the listeners, I I am not overstating this when I say Heidi is the boss in all (laughs) things circular and waste management. So let's set some context. A, who are you, Heidi? If you had to define who is Heidi today, what's the SparkNotes version of that? I spend all my energy every day trying to protect the natural world for the next generation. It's all about that. It's all about people and planet. I love it. And we'll get into the resume of Heidi in just a second. But if we rewind to the first mile, your first foray into environment, what was that first thing that got you fired up to start making this the focal area of your professional career? Great question. When I was a little kid, I remember actually being in New York City where you are. And at the time, there was a lot of diesel buses. And I told my parents, I never want to go back there. I was literally holding my breath the entire time I was in the city because of all that diesel emissions and the noise. And so noise pollution, air pollution, I was immediately really taken by it and all the litter. I, I just thought it was horrible. And that was like in the 60s when the air would literally get so bad in Staten Island, we couldn't go out. So I started really understanding that something was really wrong here. We were doing a lot of really bad stuff that was Mm -hmm. unhealthy. And then my parents would take us to the, you know, National Wildlife Federation camp 
and I'd learn all about nature and be outside. And I always felt so much better there. And I felt so at peace there. And I started seeing how everything was interconnected. And so I think what really happened is I had the diametric experience of being all immersed in nature and understanding it. And then being in a place that was concrete, noise, pollution, sound, everything was jarring to me. And I thought, we've created an environment that's unhealthy. And we can live in cities and do it healthfully, but we weren't doing it well. And we had to get back to nature and figure out how she figured out how to be zero waste, that everything on this big marble floating through space is recycled into something else. That is why it Mm -hmm. is the ultimate circular economy is nature. She figured out mm-hmm. how everything that is a waste from one system is the feedstock for the next system. And we're mm-hmm. interrupting that system. And I could see that even as a child. And then I heard about, I asked my dad on Sesame Street, who is Dodo Bird based off of? Who is the uh, Big Bird based off of? And he said, the Dodo Bird, but they don't live here anymore. I said, what do you mean they don't live here anymore? We club them to death. What? I, I was horrified. I said, what do you mean? He said people landed on the island where they lived and they basically clubbed them to death. And and I said, so I'll never see a dodo bird. He said, no, and I'm sorry. And that really upset me. I remember thinking something is very wrong when human beings of a generation prior actually had no consideration for how I would feel that I would never get to see a dodo bird. And here we are in a mass extinction phase and people are almost numb to it. So these are the things that really inspire me. I'm called the Energizer Bunny, 58 going on 20, because we cannot stop until we protect what is left and start repairing the damage we've done for the generations who follow us. And I love the Native American uh, saying about, think about the next seven generations with every decision you make. I love that. What's interesting to me is from a young age, you were this ball of passion inspired by the physical world around you. And you mm-hmm. parlay this interest into your studies at UCAL Davis. You had a mm-hmm. bachelor's, a master's, and your first professional milestone is with the California Integrated Waste Management Board. So talk me through what inspired you getting into there as your first stepping stone and what was your scope of work while on the board there? I started as a staff person in the Office of Local Assistance, and my job was to help local governments achieve the 50% diversion rate we had set in California to achieve by um, 2020. And they were having trouble, some of them, and I became very good at putting pieces together and going and helping the local governments to figure out for their specific area how to fix the problem and get them to those higher recycling rates. So they started a targeted implementation assistance team after my work. And we our goal was to get people into compliance, not to find them. And, and I really enjoyed that. And I was so good at it. I was getting called out at board meetings by local governments and everybody saying what a great job I did. And you're the only person in government. We say, hey, you really are from government and here to help us. And blah, blah, blah. So the uh, three of the six board members asked me to be their advisor, which was a super high honor. And then I literally, I of course said yes to the chair and she was the first woman chair. So I was excited to be in the first all women, all women office of the chair of the integrated waste management board between 2000 and 2002. 
And that's where I really started to see the politics and the money and trash and how much that people don't understand that local governments spend in the top three spends for local government. It's public safety, public health, and then it's waste. And so there's a lot of money and people just expect it to mysteriously go away. There's an entire infrastructure with a lot of money flowing through it and they know how to lobby. That's when I started really seeing where we were having some rubs and problems weren't getting solved. So I went back to get my master's at USC and figure out in public administration how to affect better policy change and get things to work better. That's why I actually went back to school. And then I came back and and started the California Product Stewardship Council. Wow. All right. So let's double click into those two dots there because this is late 90s, early 2000s. This is actually before the big Al Gore doc. This is when probably at the time people are fairly cognizant of how – humans are affecting the world, but it's it hasn't manifested into anything real. So you were early on mm-hmm. being passionate and then translating that into work. So if we reflect back on that time, is there a key milestone you remember that probably sh- you know demonstrated to the world that Heidi was serious, that she was going to start manifesting this passion into pieces of legislation? Mm-hmm. So if you look at those two kind of bullet points on the resume – what is a key milestone you can look back on and say, I'm proud of this moment and the work you did then? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and the first one I'm really proud of was when I was in the chair's office, I helped when we were doing a strategic plan, I got the concept of producer responsibility and the goal of zero waste into our state strategic plan for the, for the Waste Management Board. And that was a game changer. And I remember turning to the advisor when the board voted, my fellow advisor, Bonnie Bruce, and I I, that we couldn't say express ourselves on the dais, but I, I said to her, that's the first in the nation. We did it because that really set the path of a state the size of California with 40 million people is saying we are setting a goal of, of getting to zero waste, which is going back to a natural system somehow. And we are going to um, do that through getting upstream to the source of a lot of the product waste, which is the producers who make it, make all the design and marketing decisions and decide what it's going to be made out of and design. Is it designed to be obsolete quickly or is it designed to be repaired or durable? These are decisions that decide the cost at end of life. And yet the producers were not talking to the back end of the system, the people I was working with who were trying to figure out, they're like running around with this big catcher's mitt, figuring what do I, what's coming at us on the free market next? We have no clue what's coming at us. We can't do anything with a lot of it now. And we are seeing more and more what we call horrible hybrids, materials that are just multiple materials in one thing with no ability to separate them. So there was no way for us to recycle it in any way. And we lose all that embodied energy and value. So that's when I became extremely passionate about producer responsibility and decided I could only do so much in government. So it was time to go out and become an advocate. All right. I want to pause there because it is a very important topic. And again, just to zoom out to highlight how early you were, if you look at the last year, a number of big companies have put out these ambitious 2030 goals right? Let's get to X by 2030 or 2050. You've been talking about this for decades. What, what I do want to provide some type of practical outline around is when we talk about producer responsibility. And this is where there's a lot of back and forth in industry about this one. So in your mind, let's define 
producer responsibility for the listeners. And then if we were to manifest needs into legislation, how do we get the words right? Thank you, because this is one of my biggest issues with everyone talking about this is we're, we're not talking, we're using the same terms differently and that then you can't have a good, healthy adult conversation. So extended producer responsibility, abbreviated as EPR, is a widely used policy tool around the world. Uh, the OECD has an entire webpage about it, the Office of Economic I think it was development, but they talk about this and Europe actually started this idea of producers being responsible for packaging way back in the 80s around the German Green Dot program. And they started it because the public was getting so upset with all this packaging that they would leave it at the grocery store checkout. They wouldn't take it. And then the stores were upset saying, I can't do all this. And then it went back, the producers maybe should be responsible. And that's where this all started. Then it went to cars. They considered cars the most toxic product. And then it just went from there. So basically everything is under an EPR system somewhere in the world. Our country has been the last to embrace this policy approach. And I believe it's for this reason. After traveling the world and talking to manufacturers around the world and even companies that are based in California, but sell in other countries, we have very much a cowboy mentality still in the United States corporate C-suite. They don't listen to even their European counterparts in the same company about their own business, let alone EPR or how they could be good stewards of their product through the life cycle. And I've learned that companies are set up C-Corps, they only answer to money. They only answer to shareholders. That is literally their legal responsibility. They literally, legally do not really have to care about people and planet. It's not in, it's not in the discourse in the C-suite. So if all you're focused on is money, it's high, highly likely it's going to be at the expense of people and planet. And that is not working out for us. <laughs> So I've been really on this path of we have got to start advocating for a circular economy, but the problem we have in the United States is the C-suite does not want to hear that because they're literally not responsible to it. That's not mm -hmm. who they answer to. So mm -hmm. we've got to change the fundamentals of how our companies operate and who they're responsible to, because if the only thing that they care about is money, we're in a lot of trouble. This is a good opportunity, actually. I don't want to skip over too much of the stepping stones in your career, but what you're doing now as the NSAC executive director in a position of a lot of influence, we'll get into exactly what the obligations and access are at in that position. But why I think we're, this is a unique part of the interview is because we talk about EPR and you are someone who has the potential to parlay this need into permanent law in some mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And as you think about working with legislators to put ideas into text that get signed into permanence, what does that look like? If we're going to start asking industry to take on more responsibility what are the bullet points? What is What exactly and how exactly does that read in the form of law in your mind? 
this is the devil is in the details. I literally just did a webinar for advocates around the country on that do EPR right, the devil is in the details because there's a lot of different levers that have to be set up correctly in the law or else, as I say, if it's not in the law, it's not going to happen. Because again, the interest of companies that are not B corporations, which could be a whole nother podcast, which I would love to do with you at another time, is they're only going to answer to money and try to keep the cost down. And that's how we got here. They're, they don't, they externalize costs onto the people and the planet because that's their job. If you think about it, if all they're interested in is making money for shareholders, they want other people to pay as much of the cost as possible. And that's what's happened. So the package they came up with, which was cheap to buy for them, is exorbitantly expensive for us to manage at the back end or impossible, or we can't recycle it at all. And it ends up in a landfill. Nobody wants to live by a landfill. So they're in disadvantaged communities that can't fight it. And we here we go. This is where the problems start. Exactly how you write these bills is very detailed, but I could say this, the producers should design and operate the system. That means they don't have to do it themselves, they can contract for it, but they ultimately should work together to design the system and run it because they know their product and their distribution systems, et cetera. They should internalize those costs, not a visible fee on the product because this is a cost that should go to shareholders on that line item and their quarterly reports and say, this is what it's costing us to recycle this stuff and manage it. And if the shareholders say you should get that cost down, then they can think about if I make it more durable, it won't come back as frequently. If they make it repairable, it won't come back as frequently and it will reduce that cost. If we make it out of something that's more recyclable, it has a market when we sell it. So then it reduces. So they start thinking and internalizing those costs and all of a sudden the design changes. But then you have to have very strong oversight by the government, and the government has to be paid for that oversight. So we write that into the bill. And, and then there has to be a significant enough penalty, it matters. And so it's not just a dollar amount that can be litigated here, there, and everywhere. I'm actually of the mindset that because corporate America is still so resistant to this, that we really need to have the, the kind of pull the plug option, which is if they fail to meet the goals the government sets, that the government has the choice of either taking control of the program, running it and sending them the bill, or handing it over to another stewardship organization. That could be private sector, it could be a nonprofit. But the nonprofit or whoever's running it has to have the same transparency and ability to enforce against requirements because we do have a problem with some of them being transparent enough and accountable enough. So, and, and th there's two key points here. So I like around designing against planned obsolescence. That's, that, that feels like uh, we're already seeing the trend manifest. We see, we had Stojo on the pod, have these durable Tupperware 2.0 products that are modular. So bits and pieces can be replaced. You have bite toothpaste, but the idea around owning the cost of recovering the good and recycling it. There's a lot of gray area around how that's deployed and imposed. You obviously want to create a system that doesn't incentivize redundant work. Like you don't want P&G sending out a courier to just get P&G products from a household. So how does that piece of the puzzle end up turning into a program that makes sense so that we're not doubling up work around recovery? How, how would that look like? 
Well, and this is where I think, you know, innovative thinking is going to come into play. There's, we now have in the course of a year, look at how our purchasing has shifted from retail stores to online. I actually was talking with Amazon, a representative from Amazon years ago. Unfortunately, he doesn't work with the company anymore. He had a loss in his family, but he, he and I were talking about how could Amazon actually be, since they were delivering on Sundays using postal service trucks, could they also on that day be the pickup for all of their packages and their cardboard? And so when they drop off, they pick up and and be actually start being more vertically integrated. Why aren't they helping us open reopen our paper mills and, and using recycled paper? Why aren't they buy paper by enormous quantities and plastics? Why aren't they helping get it back and bring it back into the circular system? They're already delivering to every household. But there, if you let if you set the performance standard, the government sets the performance standard, and then you say to the private sector, use your great minds and your best thinking to most cost effectively figure out how to get this back. You're exquisitely good at getting it to everybody, no matter how far away they live in Alaska or wherever, everybody can get all this stuff. But somehow it's super, nobody can get it back. I don't buy it. We can figure it out. If we can put men on the moon, women on the moon, we can get our packages back for recycling. <laughs> that is just silly. Mm-hmm. There's a lot um, of smart people out there. And, and if you let them loose on this, I'm sure we're and, and companies are going to have to work together. They can't just in isolation, like you said, you can't just have one brand do their own thing. It probably wouldn't make sense. But together as an industry, they can do a lot like with they're doing mm-hmm. here in California with carpet. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that you brought that up. So I was, <laughs> I was going to say there, there's two things that probably hog 100% of your attention today. It's your work with SMUD and your work with NSAC. That's so right. I think because there's a lot to explore with NSAC, let's start with SMUD. Let's define for the listeners what SMUD is and what is your prerogative as a board member of SMUD. Um, so SMUD is the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, and I'm honored to be one of seven elected board members. We're the third largest public power authority in the country, representing, servicing about a million and a half people. And we just last night had our first hearing on our draft plan on how we're going to achieve zero carbon emissions by 2030, first in the world, set by a utility. So we're very excited. And and yeah, so I'm just one of seven, but we vote and have great debates and we're leading the nation and trying in the world really and trying to figure out how utilities are going to get off carbon. First of all, that is incredible. I think we've already gone through a couple uh, highlights through your, your resume, but this one is astounding. Yeah. Heidi's being humble. If we double click into what happened yesterday and what some of the key highlights of these proposals are, please show, like, gloat. Let us know how you're thinking about achieving this goal by 2030. Well, our staff are, I call them team awesome. We have 2,200 plus staff that are just absolutely amazing. And we gave them, we passed the resolution 7-0 vote in June or July of last year. And they only had six months until literally yesterday to come up with the plan on how we do it. What they gave us was a plan that says, a whole bunch, but generally we've got 90% of this figured out. It's the last 10 that's going to be hard. And we're going to rely on 
new innovations, technologies, and changes in costs over the next nine years to figure out how we will get that last 10%. Um, by going first, we're attracting a lot of new money and investment and partnerships that we think will help pay for this. So this will not be only on our rate base. We will be, because our key here is to keep the rates low because you can't ask people to electrify if you don't keep their rates low. You also can't ask them to electrify if you don't keep the power on and reliable. So that's absolutely key. It's a must. And it's literally life and death for some people with mechanical health equipment, et cetera. We've got to do it keeping the entire community together. We've got to bring everybody with us. We can't leave anybody behind. Those are really the keys to this. And it's a community partnership. Everybody's got a role to play, every single person in this county. And the, the community and the staff and everyone are very excited. We were pleased to hear support from even our Sacramento Real Estate Association, the Realtors Association. How can we help educate our people as we're selling them homes, buying new homes, how to electrify, get look at induction stoves, yeah, electric cars, working with our builders, getting the chargers in the new homes, making sure they're all electric, ch changing over our landscaping equipment, some of the most polluting equipment for our air. It's actually this year, according to the state air agency CARB, our California Air Resources Board, Landscaping equipment is unregulated emissions, and they are now surpassing cars as emitters. And they're really bad for the people who use them, the air that they breathe. So we really want to get them electric as well. Plus, that reduces noise pollution, as I talked about my sensitivity to noise in the city. And it's true for animals, too, by the way. They've done studies that it traumatizes animals, all this noise all the time. Wildlife didn't evolve to deal with it. So I'm excited that our plan is a community plan and we're relying on the community to help us. And we're also talking to our local electeds in the county about how we can all work together on this. And the city of Sacramento and the county, our uh, city's already adopted their climate plan, action plan and taking action. The county's in the process of doing that now. Out of curiosity, where is the 90-10 split. What's the remaining 10 that's currently really hard to do that'll require some pretty significant R&D to get over the hump? I think virtual power plants, vehicle to grid, for example, like with school buses, as we electrify school buses, they only run a couple times a day. And when they're not running, they're very large batteries in those buses that can hold a lot of power. So if they're pulling power when we have the most renewables, like sun and wind during that noon to five time frame, they can literally be mobile storage units. So when, if they have the correct inverter, we can literally use the power from that battery and pull it into the grid when everybody turns on their air conditioner at the hottest part of the day around four or five o'clock in our summers and that bus is just sitting there. That's the kind of innovation we have to, to look at. And we're doing, there is a lot of work in this now already, but we're going faster, piloting faster, partnering with companies like Zeus out of Minnesota. There's a, a brand new company out of Minnesota that's making electric, a large equipment vehicles. And we just bought five of them and I think we were the first purchaser. And a SMUD started the Mobility Center, California Mobility Center here in Sacramento. We just made the announcement last week and sat the board, the beginnings of the board. I want to see some more women on that board. But the, the Mobility Center is going to be a hub for innovation and transportation and how we electrify and get our transportation system clean. We in Sacramento want to be the attractor of green businesses and innovative thinking. And how are we all going to partner because we don't have 30 years to figure this out. The science is telling us we've got very little time and we might, and some of the tipping points have already been flipped. So 
for climate. So we've really got to move. But like I said, we have to be prudent and not and be careful to keep the power on, the rates low, and and keep everybody together. I love okay, first of all. So we have a lot of elected officials that listen to this pod, some mayors of smaller towns, bigger cities. What you just talked about is a case study in how you bring together the worlds of public and private Mm -hmm. over some shared goal. Because the hardest thing, especially as a startup founder that's taking on massive risk, has a hypothesis, right? So really their early stage, the best thing that government can do is effectively say, hey, let's assume this works because the the impact potential is so great. What can we do to support you? It's by being an early partner that enables the startup to hire scientists, engineers to have a chance. If you don't have – that's what a business is. If you don't have a customer, then you have no, you have no way to try to will – this grand idea or technology into existence. What you just talked about is a case study about how governments can partner with all the stakeholders in a community over one shared vision and goal. And we're excited. At SMUD, uh, you hit the nail on the head. At SMUD, we passed a law last year that allows us to actually partner because we had been working with, let's say, software designers on how we can have this distributed energy grid where there's solar panels being generating power on your roof, et cetera. How do you balance a grid? It used to be that we just created power and sent it one way. Now we've got all this power coming at us. We didn't even know where, how much, when it was coming, whatever. But we've got to balance the grid, make sure this is stable. So we needed new software to figure that out. We've partnered with software companies to do that. One of them, we were not as a public agency able to make money from this partnership, but we spent a lot of staff time and they got a lot of our data and so forth, protecting privacy, of course. But the bottom line is we couldn't, get any reward from those investments. Now we can. So we want to partner with private sectors and working together because we have the data, we run the utility, we can help, but we can cut our teeth together on figuring out a better way to do things that the company can profit from, but now we can also, our ratepayers can benefit from that investment of time and energy as well. So we're very excited about that. Heidi, I don't understand how you can do all this with 24 hours in a day because (laughs) on top of all of that, you're also the executive director of NSAC. Mm -hmm. Let's jump into what NSAC is and what is the number one priority around what you're working on there. Well, the National Stewardship Action Council I formed because I, I had originally formed the California Product Stewardship Council back in 2007 to drive this concept that producers be responsible for the end of life of their products. And it took literally 12 years to get to the place where it's rolling off people's tongues now in our industry. They they talk about all the time at the time, nobody had heard of it, nobody would know what I was talking about. It was a giant education for years about city councils and legislators knowing what we were talking about, what it could look like and passing early bills. The big bill that I passed at the California Product Stewardship Council was actually transitioning already to the national was the pharmaceutical and needle take back bill, SB212 in 2018. That was the big win. That was the big one because what we did was we had a drug abuse epidemic in 20, 
10, we had the needles were ending up all over because people were getting addicted to opioids and then they were turning to heroin. And all of a sudden, all this started back up. Our local governments were, we got to do something. This is bad. And so I worked with it pharmaceutical companies to try and get them to say, hey, let's do some pilots. Let's try to do needle take back. Let's, you know, figure out how do we not overprescribe all these <laughs> drugs that are getting people addicted, but also are super dangerous when left. They're like fuel for the addiction um, problem out there if we don't get them back and they're just sitting around in homes. So many, two thirds of kids are getting them from family and friends that don't even know they take them out of the closet. We, we could not get their agreement that there was a problem there to be solved. I'll just say it that way. And so we ended up passing an ordinance in Alameda County in 2012 that made the drug companies pay for taking back medicines. That set off a Supreme Court challenge. They challenged that law all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. We won it every step of the way. There was no constitutional uh, violation of interstate commerce clause, but that led to other counties passing the ordinance. King County, Washington was part of that lawsuit, and then they all followed. I think I got 12 in California to pass it. And then they started adding the needles in, not just the medicines. Now, of course, around the world, in Europe and in Canada, Mexico even, these same drug companies did the take back of medicines and needles in those countries. And they were selling their products much cheaper there. And yet we were paying the highest prices in the world and we couldn't get the same service. And I was really offended by that. Watching this addiction crisis just tear families apart, it was too much. And our cities with needles everywhere. So mm -hmm. we got it passed. We, it pushed them to the table when they knew we were going to get Los Angeles County to pass it. So they agreed and they helped us pass the bill that producers are responsible for safe medicine needle disposal. They're now working on their stewardship plans to be turned into the state and approved. And hopefully by next year, we will start to see this roll out in California, first in the nation. Heidi, I, this is incredible because if you, this is common sense. So you are the creator of a drug that is by definition highly addictive. And then you want to pass on the burden of cleaning that up to the cities that are already cash strapped? Oh, if you look at some of the articles that they did, I was literally on uh, NPR National with a, one of the attorneys from Pharma that actually said, why should the poor people of Tennessee pay for the fancy pill program of Alameda County? Because they considered it a transfer of costs. And we said, this is budget dust. That was an actual term used by a Republican pharmacist legislator, Mr. Stone, in our California legislature. It's budget dust to them. They were claiming even in the press that it was going to cost $5 a prescription. No, it's like we, we did the numbers. It's, it's like less than a, a penny a prescription. Nobody would even notice. Think of all the commercials on TV and how much they spend on those. And they're complaining about a little pill collection program because we're trying to get needles off the street and stop people from having feeling an addiction that can kill them and devastate families and society. It, it was just, again, this is the whole thing. If all they worry about is making money at the expense of people and planet, this is where we are. Mm -hmm. And Heidi, I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing, but before we, Heidi and I talked a few days ago, and one of the big questions I had was incentives. So Heidi, how, mm -hmm. how is how is you and, and your team getting compensated? Because there's the age old pretty universal understanding that industry has a lot of money to pay lobbyists. Lobby, lobbyists go to town, they work, they charm politicians with promises, and you just follow the money. 
And the first question that some of our listeners might be thinking is, what are Heidi's incentives? And when we talked about it, what is life like as the executive director of this organization? And what you said was quite shocking to me, but I guess to the extent you feel comfortable, maybe share what is life like and what are your incentives to do what you do? The incentive to do what I do is to try and I can almost tear up saying this. I don't want another little girl to feel the way I did, to feel like, why didn't people care enough that I wanted to see a dodo bird or I wanted to swim in a clean ocean without plastic in it? The next generation, we are burdening them a lot with worry about what is their future going to be. We just found plastics in placentas. That was a study from last week. What are we doing? Every environmental system is on the is collapsing. There's not one that's even holding its own anymore. The climate's changing because of us. We are running out of time. We have to wake people up and we have to do something, not just talk about it. That's my motivator. Money has never been my motivator. The motivator for me is I'm making a difference and there's not an, a, the, a, the next little girl that's born 10 years from now won't worry so much. She will realize that we did something about climate. We worked on these issues of biodiversity challenge um, and, and extinction, and we put the brakes on air pollution and, and all these things that are damaging their lungs and their brains. The chemicals that they're being exposed to, even in our cookware, we were putting toxic chemicals, still are, and we're banning it in our state, I hope, this year. But we've got we've to give people the truth and let them vote with their dollars. That's the other thing is people are not being told the truth about what's in their products. The labeling system is not working. It, we have a bill in the legislature right now that says, take the chasing arrows off the plastic that's not recyclable. And every single industry group association is fighting it. And they are on TV with big commercials saying that they support recycling. That's what motivates me. And how we get funded is really hard. Um, a 501c4 is harder to fund than a C3. A C3, you can get grants, state grants, federal grants. I can't do that with the C4, like I could for the California Product Stewardship Council. So this is much harder. We live off of individual donations, corporate donations, local governments fund us, but I would, anything people can donate, we use very wisely and nobody, we're not getting rich doing this. We're doing it for everybody to live a better life. Jesus. Heidi, I just want to pause for a second because if you look back at the last 20 years, even if we shorten the time frame to the last 10 years, your you know, 10 plus years in both stewardship councils, you have, I don't want to say single-handedly, but you with maybe a small few have helped pass legislation that will help save generations, people for generations to come. You talk about what motivates you. And so a lot of people have maybe this perverse view of the world where they think, hey, Heidi must get all this money from these corporations. She's got a, a staff of hundreds of people. Nope. Staff of one. Staff Literally, one person. It's me and Jordan and our board and our partners and, and a couple contractors. That's it. That's it. And that's what I'm saying is we're a great investment because what we're being, we're, we're super effective for our size, but 
I would like to do a lot more. We are working in Texas this year. We've got a bill in Texas on, that's a Texas style recycling bill, something that they could get excited about. And we nobody thought that we could get anything in Texas, but you know that's the kind of stuff we do if we can stay funded. And now I'm working with Congressman Lowenthal and Senator Merkley's office with the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act because we have to do something much bigger. We're like I said, we're running out of time. We've got to get big changes, and we have to get it right. We have to stop making mistakes and dilly-dallying and studying everything, paralysis of analysis. It's pretty obvious what's going on a big picture. So you can get a lot done with the data we already know, and then you can refine it later over the details. You can argue over the science, but do nothing is not an option anymore. Um, Heidi, I I had a couple more things that I wanted to to bring up, but honestly, I think most listeners get the point by now that Heidi is a force to be reckoned with. And she, I don't want to speak on your behalf, but if you just look at the history of wins and losses, like you've gone to bat for years now. But if you just go to the website, you can see the history and the work that they've done year in, year out. And so uh, instead of getting into all those milestones, because I think people, even just with this pharmaceutical one, it's this is a game-changing victory You've done work with carpets, with paint. The list goes on. But what I want to do now is just before we put the bookends on this is what is the highest priority item that you're focused on passing right now? You you sent me over information on the Solid Waste Disposal Act. You have a ton of stuff on the plate. But what is one thing that you're really optimistic about? that could have a big impact on the world today and for many decades to come? I think the good thing is right now there's so much discussion about plastics and packaging that I think we're going to start to see companies voluntarily, because they feel the pressure now, changing their packaging types, using higher recycled content, using creating that market pull for us so we can actually sell it again and make the economics of our system work. But less, less packaging, please. We need less packaging and we need it to be compostable or easily recyclable. And we have to have it labeled correctly. We can't keep confusing the public with chasing arrows and then expect them to not be confused and put it into the recycle bin instead of the trash bin. And then we have to sort it out and spend all the money sorting it out. And then we wonder our trash bills go up. So I feel like truth in labeling and packaging is the next big thing. Expanding carpet, the only stewardship law in the world for carpet we did in California, expanding that, and we've got a lot of improvements to that system, and several, uh, there are bills in Minnesota and New York this year and other states that hopefully will do better than we did and learn from our mistakes. Though That's a big deal. People don't think of it, but it's plastic. Very little carpet is wool anymore. So it's a fossil fuel-based product that's 3 to 4% of our waste stream singly, and it's very hard to handle. So we need to get that back and get that back into a circular economy and create those jobs and keep them here not send it to other countries. And the other big thing I think we're going to get done this year is re, is get the, our country to ratify the Basel Convention. Our state is putting forward a resolution, Assembly Joint Resolution 4, asking the Biden administration to please urgently ratify that resolution. That says that we will not export hazardous waste, which now includes plastic, to countries that cannot manage it. A lot of people say, oh, it's not us. It's the Southeast Asian countries are flooding all the plastic in the ocean. Where do you think it came from? California is one of the biggest exporters of plastic to Southeast Asia. So our state is trying to get truth 
to the public and correct mistakes, not call it recyclable if it's going to other countries that don't truly recycle it. Not, I call it international environmental injustice. We are exporting our problems to other countries who cannot handle it and shame on us. That is not okay. This is where, again, externalizing costs onto people and planet should not be a motive for profit. That is a dangerous economic system. We have to correct that. My last question, Heidi, is around what we can do. You've been in the front row seat for years and years. And I just want to sit on the other side of the table. What is one thing that the average Jill and Joe can do to be productive, to feel like what they're doing every day means something? What is your word of wisdom on that point? They have the ultimate power, and I don't think most of them know it, is that if you don't buy something, then they won't keep making it. It's really that simple. So vote with your dollars. Know who you are giving your money to and what they do with it. So if you find out, I think you're seeing it now with this whole thing about voting and people going after the companies in Georgia about the voting rights stuff. It's the same thing with waste. If you don't like what this company is doing with waste, and then you should tell them strongly by not buying their product and saying, keep doing that. Because what you're, when you vote with your dollar to buy it, you're telling them that's okay. And the other thing I see is when you get something like a overpackaged product that you couldn't have imagined would be that overpackaged when you bought it online, but it shows, take pictures, send it to the company, put it online, tag the company, and they, they have people that troll the internet trying to find who, who's saying bad things about our brand. Tell them, make sure they see you and they will stop doing that because they don't want to upset their customers. They want their customers to be happy and keep purchasing their product. The other thing, you know, is to help educate other people because a lot of people think they don't have any power and nothing they do matters and all of that stuff. It really, every everybody matters. Look at the elections. Every vote mattered. Every person matters. Every vote with your dollar matters. And getting your legislators, I tell everybody, your legislators should know you by your first name. Work on a campaign. Find somebody you like. Get behind them and get them elected. And then make sure that they know how you feel about things. That's how this democracy works. And when you don't do that, you can't complain because they're just, uh, there's people, somebody else put those people there and they aren't necessarily listening to you. And I wish more, it's hard as an elected official myself, there's a lot of people, I represent 170,000 people. Am I going to be able to talk to all of them? No, but, and I try really hard to be good representative of all of them, whether I know them or not. But I always encourage people, give us input, make sure we're doing a lot of outreach, but make sure you don't, you're not on the outside of the discussions. Be in the discussions, vote, we know who's voting, we know what you're saying, and we, we will hear you, but vote with your dollars every single day. It matters. Heidi, I wanna make sure that after this episode, for many years to come, people can stay connected and in the know around what you're doing. What are you up to getting involved, supporting your work? Let's give them one call to action. What is the easiest way for them to stay in the loop with what you're working on, support you? How can they find you? 
please, the, the floor is yours. If they have a company or individually can give, it's only $150 for an annual membership. We have free webinars for all our members, about six of them a year. We're doing one on legislation, including the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act uh, next month on the, I think it's April 15th um, for our members. So you can join, you get on, we have listservs by product category, everything from cannabis waste to electronics to packaging, whatever your interests are. And you can get on those listservs. You can follow us on social media. If you don't have any money, just follow us on social media. Share our posts. That's incredibly helpful to get the word out to your friends. We do calls for action. So sign on and you can. If we have a bill that's we need support, sometimes we need to know how many people are in District X. And it's really great to have your information so that we can call you and know where you live and get send you information about contacting your legislators. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the best way to do it is just join us and then you can stay totally in the loop. At least follow us on social media. We've got Mm -hmm. Facebook, Instagram, the whole thing. And everyone, that's nsaction.us. That's Heidi's website. You can go to all the socials through there. Yep, nsaction.us. Heidi, thank you for, A, coming on the show, giving me an hour of your busy day, and thank you for your commitment over quite literally your entire professional career. So thank you, Peter. you're the best. <laughs> Heidi, thank you so much. And uh, I'm excited for round two. That's for sure. I am too. There's lots more to talk about. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks for caring. And thanks to everybody for listening. Take care. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rockstar founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday. <laughs>